The Lord who once spoke a word that clove the darkness, burst the darkness in pieces and brought light to the world. The Lord who spoke the word and Christ himself came to bring grace and truth and bring light to our paths. And in the name of the Holy Spirit, whose wonderful word still today continues to speak to us, let us hear God's voice, see his ways, see his image through the eyes of faith and joyfully anticipate the reunion. My dear friends, you know, when you've had something that's around you a long, long time, you tend to take it for granted. How, how can it not be any other way with foolish sinners like you and me? I take so many of my blessings for granted. Sitting at the curb in front of my house is a mighty 350 horsepower chariot that leaps to do my bidding. And the only time I notice it and think about it at all is when something's wrong with it. Then I complain like crazy, grump about what it costs to have it fixed, and then I promptly forget about it again. I don't even worry that the food in the metal box in our kitchen's going to spoil because it's called a fridge and its job is to keep the food fresh and keep it from spoiling. I take it for granted. Worse than taking the machines in my life for granted are taking the people in my life for granted. I take you for granted way too much and do not thank God enough for you, my sisters and my brothers. I take my family mercilessly for granted and do not tell God often enough how I should be appreciating the incredible blessings, the human blessings he's given me in my close family and in my extended family. One amazing miracle after another. And unfortunately, as Christians, I will be the first to admit and invite you to join me in the corner of shame, taking the Bible for granted, because it's always there. Every time you actually spend a little of your time and you sit yourself down in these extremely comfortable, beautiful wooden pews, well, at least they're beautiful, Right in front of you is that black book. It's just laying there waiting for you. You know it's going to be there. Perhaps in your home you've got a special honored place for your, your personal Bible. I, you have one, don't you? You do, don't you? If you don't, please tell me. We'll fix that this week. Maybe it lies on the nightstand by your bed. Maybe it's on the coffee table or on a, on a bookshelf in an easy-to-reach place where you can go grab it. I hope it's all creased and worn and kind of dog-eared and the pages are kind of sweaty because you've used them so often. That's my hope for you. But you don't think much about it because it's automatic. It's just there. When was the last time you thanked God that you have a Bible? But think what the world would be like without it. Think what it was like to be a believer in the Middle Ages where, first of all, you were illiterate only maybe 2 to 3% of you could actually decode writing. It had been lost because after the invasions of the barbarians, the Roman system of education in the empire pretty much collapsed. And except for the church, except for monasteries and church schools, literacy was not being passed on from one generation to the next. And even if you could read, Books were so expensive, a Bible that had to be written by hand would have cost 
uh, more than anyone but the richest of the nobility could afford. And compounding the problem is that the churches were no longer speaking your language. It sounds absurd now, and there are reasons for that, but the fact is that the church in which Martin Luther grew up as a little boy used Latin for almost everything in the service. The music, the liturgy, the prayers, all spoken, sung, or chanted in Latin. If you were lucky, you might get a few words of explanation of the gospel by the priest, but unfortunately, the the idea of having a, a Bible study or sermon or homily in the middle that would explain things to people in language they could understand had been shrinking for centuries and some places were skipped entirely. You think I'm making this up? Raise your hand if you think I'm making this up. Okay, good. Because you, you'd be wrong if you raised your hand. But you can fact check me if you want. Please do, I invite you to. And sad to say, people had to depend on the organization, the human organization of the church for their authority and the content they needed. Three weeks ago, I celebrated with you the first of the major gifts of the Reformation, and that is the content of the gospel had been lost, had been adulterated. And people need to know the answer to two powerful, powerful questions. One, one is, how do I have a relationship with the great power of the universe? How can my life get better? How do I communicate with this God up there, whoever he is? How do I find out who he is? How do I learn who I am and where I came from? You need to know those things. And the second thing is, you need to have authority and confidence behind that information. What do I know and how do I know it for sure? Enough to risk my life on it. And those are Reformation gifts to you and to me. They're sadly things that had been lost over the centuries. Martin Luther, you know, had the nerve to post some protests, 95 of them, little observations and sharp little critiques of what he couldn't stand and what he couldn't understand about the indulgence trade, the selling of pieces of paper that promised to reduce or eliminate your years in purgatory, which actually doesn't exist either. There is no such thing in God's book as indulgences and there's no purgatory either. And this was the beginning of his public questioning of the authority of the church he'd been taught and brought up to obey without question and not even allowed to question on pain of excommunication. And his hammer blows tacking his protests to the castle door, to the town bulletin board, were mighty hammer blows that, though he little realized it, were going to rock all of Christendom. After he wasn't being listened to, he wrote three pretty strongly worded tracts or essays criticizing things that he saw that he didn't like that he thought were contrary to the word of God and got in a heap of trouble, was called before the imperial government of all of Central Europe. And even though he was promised a safe conduct, he went anyway, figuring he was going to be assassinated, but he thought, here is where I'm going to stand on my hind legs and tell the truth, speak the truth to power. 
That's where his famous here I stand phrase came from. He refused to back down from the things he had written for he said they're based on scripture which is more powerful than any decrees given from the church government or even councils put together of human beings because all of them are just human agencies. The only utterly reliable source of information that we have in which we can place full confidence, which critiques all human pronouncements, is scripture, is the Bible. And unless I am convicted from scripture, I cannot go against my conscience. And that's where his famous here I stand phrase came from. I can do no other, God help me, he said. And as he was leaving town, uh, there were quite a few people in the entourage of the emperor whispering in his ear, he's a heretic, don't let him go. And the emperor said, well, I gave him a pass of safe conduct. I got to let him go. And they said, no, you don't. You don't have to keep your word to a heretic. They are agents of Satan and should be rounded up and we should do to them what we did to John Huss 100 years earlier. We should burn him at the stake as a lesson to anybody else who would dare to do these things. But while they were dithering about what to do, Luther slipped out of town and made his way back home. But he never got home. He was jumped by a gang of horsemen in the middle of the night in Thuringia, nearby to Saxony where he lived. Almost home, but not quite. And they ran him around in circles so that their horse hoofs could cover the tracks so nobody could track down where they were going to take him. So they made a great big flurry of dust and rode back and forth for hours trying to set up a completely indecipherable horse trail and snuck him off to a mostly empty castle that hadn't been used much, it goes back to the early Middle Ages, to a castle called the Wartburg. And there Luther was stashed to keep him alive a secret plan that only a couple of people knew. Luther was tipped off that this would be happening and he had the foresight to bring his uh, German, uh, some texts, some theological texts with him in German, but especially his Greek New Testament and his Hebrew Old Testament, which only recently had been published. This is all an amazing like coincidence. And he was there for the better part of a year, laying low, let his beard grow out, got rid of his monk's clothes, and he dressed like an ordinary knight and stayed out of sight. And while he was there, he was a one-man literary factory, pouring out letters and tracts, but he also, in a span of three months, a short three months, translated the entire New Testament into colloquial German so that the people would have the word of God in a language they could understand. They were no longer prisoners to Latin that they could not understand. And that was printed in September of 1522. There had been other fragments of the Bible in the German language, but they were not very well done, and they never caught hold. People didn't get it. They didn't get much out of reading it. Some of them were kind of antique, and in the late Renaissance era, both German and English were morphing. They were in a period of great change. And there was no universally used Bible translation in their language. And I want to celebrate with you today that this is one of the greatest of the gifts of the Reformation. Luther followed up his New Testament. It took 12 years 
to get the Old Testament done. By then, he was back home in Wittenberg, and it took him a lot longer because of the insane press of all his other duties to get the Old Testament translated. Also, he didn't do it by himself. He had a translation team of scholars, and they issued it piece by piece as they came out, five different pieces. Finally, in 1534, the Old Testament was done, and for the first time, the German people had a Bible in their own language from Genesis to Revelation, plus the Apocrypha. And as a little bonus, he translated the Apocrypha for him too. And because it was so well done, so thoughtfully done in a scholarly way, so accurate and yet so conversational, Luther said, I want Moses to sound, I don't even want people to even suspect he's Jewish. I want him to think Moses was German. I, I want everybody to think that God was speaking German to Adam and Eve already in the Garden of Eden. So I want it to sound natural, like this, these things are happening in the real world. And his Bibles became an insane success and spread like crazy. Our English-speaking earlier relatives were only slightly behind. They also, like the Germans, had had examples of printed Bibles early on. One was done by a man named John Wycliffe in the 1300s. But Wycliffe was writing and speaking as his dialect of Middle English was coming to a close. And the English language went through a huge convulsion where the speakers today, if you would hear Wycliffe's Bible being read to you, you could barely understand it. You would get only little fragments. And because the spelling was crazy different, you wouldn't even enjoy reading it. It would be useless to you. In fact, Wycliffe's work was pretty much non-functional within a generation or two after he died. Wycliffe somehow managed to stay alive his whole life, but it didn't last long. At, at the Council of Constance that had condemned John Huss, they also gave orders that Wycliffe's body should be exhumed and so that he would be given the shame of being considered a heretic. They burned his corpse and scattered the powder left behind from that cremation on the river outside of town so that his grave would be empty. There'd be nobody in it since they couldn't get at him anymore. A generation later, a man named William Tyndale did basically the same thing Luther did just about three years later, translated the New Testament into contemporary English. And it was so threatening that he was hounded and had to flee England for fear of his life. Somehow, with a team of other scholars, managed to get the Old Testament done like Luther in the 1530s. He was found in Belgium. Uh, he was seized by the royal forces, strangled and burned at the stake for daring to bring a translation into English to print it and distribute it to lay people, because after all, you're just lay people. You are not of the elevated clergy rank. I tell you these ancient stories not just to amuse you or dust off some weird ancient history, but because Satan is trying to keep people from the word of God as he's trying to keep it from you as well. And you have a powerful weapon. It's in your lap right now or it's in the rack in front of you. It's loaded, it's on a website that your mobile device can get anywhere you go in the world, in any one of many translations. Tyndale's did not become dominant, but about 75% of it was recast in 
about 100 years later, uh, and it is, then became called the King James Version, the monarch who sponsored it, and that became the dominant translation in the English world all the way till my young adult life. It lasted that long, 300 plus years. But it came to us with great cost, and we need to appreciate it and use it. I'd like to share a few words with you from something St. Paul wrote to Timothy. Um, they're extremely powerful words. It's a twin reading to what you heard from Second Peter about 15 minutes ago as the two most majestic places in all of Scripture where God explains to you what it is that he's giving you in that Bible that you're looking at or holding or which is right in front of you. You heard that Peter said that none of Scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God provided the content and used human secretaries, used their vocabulary and their life experiences, used their minds and their skills, but God controlled the content right down to the words. Here is Paul's way of putting it. He's writing now as an old man. Just like Peter said, I, I know my life is short. The Lord has revealed to me I'll be dead soon. Uh, by the way, a nifty little passage in Scripture for you to use if you're ever talking to someone who knows that he or she is dying. You can look ahead to the moment of your death without fear, terror, anger, bitterness, or feeling cheated. You can be serene about it, as Peter was serene. Paul also said, my life, he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I feel like my, the juices of my life, my blood, sweat, and tears are just going right out. I'm, I'm drying up, and my life will soon be over. But he wanted to pass on to the next generation of leaders the right attitude toward the Bible to appreciate how important it is. And not only what to believe, but why. The why is what I want to really emphasize to you today. Not only what to believe, Christ in the middle of everything, but why. How do you know that for sure? Who says? I call that the Pastor Jesky magic question. Call the bluff. Who says? Paul's, Paul, in the first part of that paragraph that closes chapter 3, says, you can trust me, Timothy. You've known me. But it's even more importantly what's written for you. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of. For one reason, because you know those from whom you learned it. But even more importantly, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. The word scripture means something that is written down. And it's holy because its content comes from heaven, comes from God himself. Here's its power. The written scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures have the power to convert unbelievers into believers, to turn rebels into joyful children, to turn disobedient, angry enemies of the gospel into eager friends of the gospel who say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. The Bible has the power to save you. And that's how you can fact check me. I don't have the power to save you, but the word of God does. The congregation of which I am a part and you are a part does not have the power to save you. 
Sometimes our congregation over its history got things wrong. We are not infallible. Our denomination is a wonderful denomination. I've been a member of it my whole life, and there's a load of stuff I appreciate, but it's a collection of human beings that are not infallible, and sometimes they make mistakes or say things in a wrong way or are loveless and abusive because they're sinful human beings and make mistakes. There is only one thing in your life where there are no mistakes, and that is your Bible. Why? Because its content was controlled by God. Paul's way of putting it is that Scripture is God-breathed. And that he made a little pun on the Holy Spirit because that's the Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit is the one who brought about the, brought the Word of God to earth and saw to it that it was written down. And it's God-breathed. He breathed his content into the pages and he breathed his power into the pages. Power to give you faith in Christ Jesus so that you are connected with the one who obeyed all of God's laws for you. And in this way, you don't have to fear all of the consequences for your many little acts of disobedience and rebellion in thought, word, and deed. You have an obedient Savior as your substitute. He also substituted for you under God's wrath and punishment. And you need not fear the judgment. That is a magnificent gift. That's what to believe. How do you know that it's true? The Bible tells you that it's true. Most little Sunday school children figure that out pretty early on because Sunday school teachers who love them teach them to sing, Jesus loves me, this I hope. What? Did I get that wrong? Jesus loves me, this I think? This I wish? No, it's no. <laughs> Say it with me. Jesus loves me this I know. Why? Tells me. Okay, you know that. And the reason you can trust it, the why, is that it's God-breathed. That makes the Bible useful for teaching. You can say something is right and something is wrong. You have bright, clear lines on what matters. You can convey the gospel that saves people. St. James wrote, receive with meekness the ingrafted word which can save your soul. Rebuking means you, you can actually say that there are some things that are wrong. Correcting means you can fix things because you know the right ways. Training in righteousness. In other words, it's not just an interesting book for history nerds and telling you lots of interesting facts about long ago that have no relevance today. It has complete relevance today. It not only teaches you how to live for God, but gives you the strength to do it. Why? So that men and women of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is why you can trust it, because God controlled its content. Men spoke from God not on the basis of their own interpretation, but they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No church council, no church official, no matter how exalted, no matter how personally godly, has that kind of capability to give you absolute certainty. And Satan has been trying from day one to undercut people's confidence in the authority, the inerrancy, and infallibility and inspiration of the scripture. And these are words you and I need to hang on to 
with a death grip and not let anybody take away from us. This is how, in fact, to celebrate this gift of the Reformation, not just by saying, hey, ain't we special, that our particular denomination was birthed out of the initial rebellion that gave people a written word. I hope that you are indeed grateful for God's stupendous gift to you. But don't just look at it and say, um, what, man, what a good girl am I, what a good boy am I, lucky are we, and then go back to your same old life without any change. Here's the thing to do. Show your appreciation for that by your personal use with it. Is the Bible functionally the word of God in your life? Do you pay any attention to your heavenly father? Obviously you do because you're here today. And the people I'd really like to talk about this are the people who are sleeping in today and have no plans to be in church this weekend. They're the ones who really need to hear it. But there will be days when you don't feel like going or even when you show up, when you're so bored or distracted, uh, your mind is completely elsewhere. Give God your full attention. Be in the word and let him speak to you. That's where your strength and joy in life come from. That's where you can start liking yourself again, with knowing it with absolute certainty that God loves and forgives you, that you're precious and valuable to him, that you're not a piece of junk that he's going to throw away on a scrapyard. You are a valuable daughter and son of the Most High. Here is where you will find absolute certainty that your, your many sins have been forgiven, and each day you may have a fresh, clean start. Here is where power comes from. So you not only can think thoughts, I wish this could be my life, he gives you the strength actually to do it and to live for him because there is power for training in righteousness in the word. Make it as important in your life as it truly is the very words of God himself who lo loves speaking to you as his children. I also hereby formally charge you to insist that your congregation make the word of God the core of everything. It's your job to hold your pastors accountable, to make sure that you are not just hearing a long slew of their opinions, but that everything that happens in our worship time together is word-based, that you can trace it back and find it out for yourself. Fact check me. I'm not scared of that. In fact, I demand that you do that. If there's anything that you think, huh, what? Go check me. Check it out. Read it yourself. Do some reading. And if you think I or your other pastors have ever strayed off the mark, it's your job to hold us accountable because you are priests of God as well. I'm not your priest. I'm only your friend and travel companion and scout. But you are priests of God with the worth and dignity given to you to hold the word of God in your hands, to read the Bible for yourself and figure it out on your own and to hear it, study it, believe it, and share it. And you have a mighty mission, not only to be receivers of this precious word, but to be sharers and givers of the word as well. Thy strong word did cleave the darkness. At thy speaking it was done. Thy strong word bespeaks us righteous. God, through your word, you call me holy and pure. Wow, you've changed my life. Thy strong word is also going to summon us from our graves where we can sing hallelujah face to face. <laughs>